I'm going to pay down my mortgage. Interest rates are high. I better start paying down my mortgage rather than going and buying another property. And so the amount of debt in the system starts to decrease. And because the RBA are very, very good at managing this, we just basically end up having these cycles. And according to Ray Dalio, and statistically it checks out in Australia, those short debt cycles are every seven to 10 years. How often does property double? <laughs> according to the rule of thumb, right? Welcome back to Dash.Insider, the auditory epicenter for passionate property investors seeking to create a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And on today's episode, we're going to be exploring a very bold, audacious claim that the Australian property market will never crash. And joining me to explore this topic, joining me to explore, tease out this idea, and actually see if that is actually true to the best that we could possibly do that, is our PhD economics expert. At, no, I'm only joking. Where, it was, <laughs> it's a, a Emil Pinder back again. People have been raving Emil over the last couple of episodes we've done together. They've said, what a great dynamic. Let's do more of those. So we're back again. How do you feel about being back? On the oh, I love it. It's my favorite part of the week. It actually is. I'm an extrovert, so I like talking to people. I don't get tired from it. I could talk to people all day. That's so funny. I'm an introvert. That's why I'm sort of conscious of like how long should the podcast be? I don't want to. I don't want to tire out Goose completely because he's got other stuff to do today. Well, thankfully, the conversation is stimulating enough to make up for the energetic drain of the interaction. Okay. Uh, I think, I think <laughs> collective, <it rounds> out. <laughs> collective sigh of relief. I can I can hear the audience sighing sighing with relief already. Okay, so Emil, you and I were talking uh, just before we hit record. We were talking about the long and short term debt cycles, monetary policy, all this kind of stuff, which I know is something you're particularly passionate about, which is really fascinating to me. Before we get into that, you know, I have some really fundamental views on the Australian property market, and I think that I find it very well. Let me rephrase this. I have yet to find a viable scenario that would point to the property market crashing in Australia over any kind of significant period. Now, my points of view, though, aren't based on the long and short-term debt cycles. My points of view are based on other fundamental drivers, characteristics, supply limitations, uh, desirability, economic stability, all of these other kind of factors. And if you look at places like Singapore and Hong Kong, you look at their property markets, you know, like fundamentally, those markets are also never going to collapse either. At worst, they might find a ceiling where they stop growing. But even that is where it's just like every year prices just hit new records and they've been doing that for some time. And if you just allow me a little bit of exploration space on this as well, in many ways, I, I would say that the Australian real estate market has more akin to a market like Singapore and Hong Kong than, say, other markets like you might see in Europe or the UK or even the US. And just in the same way, that different markets perform in different ways. So, so the interesting fact is that the Bondi real estate market is actually performs more like the luxury handbag market than it does the rest of the Australian property market because of the market dynamics. That's not so you start to... Yeah. Yeah, super interesting because it actually, the pricing is actually outside of utility, right? So it actually is priced the same. The, the pricing dynamics in that market work more like the luxury luxury goods market. So basically, an apartment in Bondi is more like a Hermes handbag than it is a, a an apartment in Bondi. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's quite, <laughs> which is quite funny. So I have some really strong points of view on the long-term stability on the Australian property market, but I'd love to hear your points of view on how this relates to the long and short-term debt cycles. First up, I think you're absolutely right that there are things in the Australian property market that mean it's not going to collapse, that don't necessarily relate to long-term and short-term debt cycles and the monetary policy and things that prop up the market overall. 
And what you'll often see is as heat goes into a property market, as more money gets printed, essentially, not necessarily by the government, but by the banks, and we'll get to that shortly, then there's a lot more money in the system. There are a lot more properties being built, but the proportion of really, really desirable properties like in Bondi, like in Sydney, Northern Beaches, like specific locations on the Gold Coast or on the sunny coast, right? In Little Bar, Noosa. Those places, you, you can't make Noosa that much bigger than what it is at the moment. And you just end up with more money and more people wanting to live there. And so prices in those locations over time can go up more steeply than in other places when you're looking at absolute values of the properties. So when it comes to looking at the percentages, there are so many different ways of analyzing it and reports that you can see. And some people say, no, it's the, it's the rural areas that do better if you're looking at year-on-year percentage increases. And some people say, no, no, it's the blue chip suburbs. And other people say, no, no, it's these really, really luxury suburbs. But fundamentally, I think you can extrapolate that idea about those highly desirable suburbs in Australia it's actually most, when you're comparing, say, Bondi to Parramatta, Bondi is obviously more desirable. And so more money and more wealth is going to go in there. Sorry, Eels fans. But also on a global scale, you can think of Australia as the Bondi compared to the Parramatta that is most of the rest of the world, right? Because there aren't honestly that many countries out there that give you the lifestyle. Like so many people would love to live in Australia. And that that applies to America, Americans, Europeans. Like there are so many good things going for Australia that I think there is always going to be a demand side of the equation. And so there's always that to fall back on. However, what I'm chiefly interested in is where does the money come from? Because what do you mean by where does the money come from? The property market keeps on going up and up and up and outpacing inflation, right? If we're if we're told that the inflation rate is 2% or 3% or CPI is 2% or 3% or whatever it might be for a particular year. And yet property goes up by seven or eight. Where the hell does that cash come from? And it has to come from somewhere. And where it comes... What do you mean, where does that cash... What do you mean, where does that cash come from? Well, let's say... Well, this comes back to the fundamental belief that I had when I was, I was just a little kid, right? I put money in the bank because I was a good little saver. That's what... You know, we had some guy from the bank comes along to the school and tells us all about saving. Can I just actually jump in there? Like that whole like Dolomites, I think it was, like Commonwealth Bank getting integrated into all of the public schooling system. You, you, later, you're like, what the hell? That's crazy. Like a bank managed to get into every single government school and get all of these people from day one to put a, a, it's insane i'm like like if you're the poster you put on the wall and then you can track your savings like that and then they give you a little sticker or something once you've saved 80 dollars you know this is back in like 1985 or and uh so i always thought you know i've put my 80 dollars there but then the bank can go and lend out that 80 dollars and they're giving me a savings rate of you know whatever it might be these days might be like two percent or whatever uh and they're going to lend it out and they're going to make four percent and that's how banks make money through that margin but it was a, a few years ago now, right? So I've been interested in property, investing in property, working with property companies for over a decade now. But it was only in the last couple of years that I really started to learn. And I, and I learned by chance initially, just a mate of mine sending me the right videos that were about crypto. And then I was sort of like, well, hang on, that means, and then therefore, and therefore, and therefore. And suddenly I got a completely different picture of how the property market works or how monetary policy 
affects the property market in such a way that as much as you are 100% correct that the, the supply-demand equation is always favouring Australian property, monetary policy is also propping it up to a massive degree as well. And that gave me a different level of confidence around investment strategy. That made us like suddenly it is like seeing the code in the matrix and it's like, okay, now I really feel, now I only feel like I know it and it's with a lot of confidence, but you know, I'm only 46. I'm well aware that um, my thoughts on this could well be completely wrong. Let, okay. Let's pull this apart a little bit more because you're saying things that, that aren't, that are still not yet tangible. You're saying, right. So yes, the supply demand equation all makes sense. Great. But you've seen something that other people have not seen and you only saw real realistically in the last couple of years, that's given you a different perspective and an, uh, and a more buoyed sense of confidence, and it's related to the money monetary policy. What do you mean by monetary policy? How does this relate to debt? Like, break this down for someone who's hearing this for the first time. Help them understand. Like, what do you mean? Like, yes, okay. So we we, we many people will know that we operate a fractional reserve, fractional reserve banking system. And for those of you who don't know that, the way that it works is very simple. If you go and put a hundred dollars of savings into the bank, the bank can lend out ten times of that. So if you put a hundred dollars of cash into the bank. The bank can lend out up to 10 times or nine times of that cash that is in the bank. They only need to keep 10% of actual cash reserves versus the amount of money that gets lent out. So if you put a so for every thousand dollars you put in there, they can lend out ten thousand dollars basically, right? And so you end up creating this this kind of like uh, expanded supply of capital is probably the best way to think about it, right? Because if there's a a trillion dollars or let's say a, a billion dollars of money in inverted commas, floating around in people's bank accounts because it's not actual. If everyone went to the bank and said, can I withdraw all of my cash? Only 10% of the cash actually exists. Exactly. It's, not actually, it's not actually there, right? Exactly. So, so 90, 90% of the money that, that, that exists in our bank accounts doesn't actually exist. It's, it's, um, it's conceptual money. Exactly. So talk to me how this relates to your, your point of view. What you've said there, I think, uh, 100%, I agree with it because it's a fact, right? And to use the example I used earlier, I saved that $80. Me saving that $80 meant that the bank could then go and lend out $800. And so where does that $800 come from? And essentially, if we take a step back and something else that I sort of need to include here as well that, that sort of completes the picture is the government needs to stimulate the economy, right? That's, that's one of the things that the government's there to do is to make sure that Australia is successful. And there are three main ways that they can help the economy. There are, there are others as well, but these are sort of what it boils down to as the three big ones. One is government spending because you're creating jobs, you, you're getting you're getting things done. Two is through trade policies. And three is through interest rates. And the interest rate part of it sort of falls on the RBA. When we look at Australia and how the economy is going, compared to most other countries, Australia's looking pretty good. Debt to GDP ratio is 50%. You compare that to Japan, which is over 200%. You compare it to the US, which is about 130%. And they've got big problems, right? They've got big problems and there could be some sort of ripple effect that comes from that. But the Aussie economy looks like it's in, relatively speaking, a good spot. Now, that's a very subjective assessment, right? I'm sure the comments section will tell us <laughs> some people are going to be like, no, it's, it's falling to pieces. And other people are going to be like, we've done a remarkable job over the last however long it is. You look at GDP per capita, we're double Japan. Japan, one of the big, like, killer economies in the world in terms of, like, the sheer volume uh, of money that comes into the country. And GDP per capita in Australia is double what it is in Japan. Looking at most metric, now, if you're comparing yourself to whoever's at the top, right, then, you know, Qatar or 
uh, or an Emirate or, or somewhere, you know, they're, they're going to be doing okay. Luxembourg, small countries, very easy to manage. But when you're talking about a really big country with a pretty small, low population density, Australia's doing pretty damn well. Punching above its weight. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's helped by the beaches. It's helped by like how good life in Australia is. Let me let me throw something in there. You basically said there's, there's I'm, I'm paraphrasing tremendously here, so feel free to correct me a little bit, but basically the government can, can effectively stimulate the economy in, in three ways. Spending money. Right, so investing capital into the com- into the country to you know infrastructure projects, jobs, that kind of thing, trade, selling shit to other countries, and raising interest rates or lowering or de- decreasing them to stimulate the economy. Right. So there's another point of view here that that, um, that I'd like to bring to the table as well, and it's a very simplistic point of view. But as long as as long as Australia is digging shit out of the ground and bringing people in through immigration, the economy is going to be fine. And that's really interesting to kind of think about that too, because like it points to the trade thing. So we're, we're digging stuff up and we're selling it to other countries. So we're effectively, if you want to think about that on a really basic level, it's kind of like selling equity. We're literally taking pieces of our country or the business, the economic business of Australia, and we're selling it to other countries. So we're effectively selling bits of our business, which is our land, our stuff, our resources to other countries for a profit, right? Very simplistically, because companies are doing it, then there's trade tariffs and, and whatever. The thing that I uh, find interesting about this, though, is the immigration side of things, right? Because people think, why does immigration matter? More people, more people spending money in shops, maybe. You know, more people need houses. But there's also the other. There's also the other perspective of it that every human being that is on the balance sheet of a country is a revenue generation. Absolutely, they're a resource. And yeah, they're a resource. And so every human being that is a citizen or a tax resident, more specifically, of any country is an asset that is in, in, a, in a very simplistic premise owned by that country. And so there's a lot of money to be made. And so if the country wants, if Australia wants to make more money, if it wants more revenue coming in, put more people so it can apply more taxes and it can generate more revenue, it's pretty, pretty simple on that front as well. So the, the, the immigration side of the equation is also a massive stimulus to the economic equation. I agree. Uh, and those people also bring money all the time, which also helps. So those three ways are the key ways that the government can stimulate the economy. Now, in terms of Australia makes money by digging stuff out of the ground, remember that um, the mining sector, it's around 25, this is another one of those, the comment section will tell us if we've got this right, but it's only about a quarter. So even if we knock that all on the head, okay, there'd be ripple effects for, for, for employment and things like that. The GDP per capita would still be one and a half times what Japan is. Yeah, even so, but it's a wonderful safety net to have. It's a really, really good safety net to have that there. Now we come to interest rates. So this is where it gets interesting. Now I got this info from looking at uh, some of Ray Dalio's material. And I've checked it with a bunch of people that I know who are deep in economics. And they've told me that it all checks out. And essentially, the way he described it was that there are three, imagine a graph, and we need to put three lines on that graph. The first line is going to be productivity. Very simple. That just keeps on going up and up and up and up and up, or up and up and up and up and up, this way, depending on (laughs) which way around the video gets flipped. Over time, productivity increases. Things like AI, technology, innovation, that helps productivity go up so that you know we can be competitive with other countries, which is a good thing. I'd love it if the Aussie government actually put some fences around the way Australia innovate. There are so many great innovations that come out of Australia, but they just get snapped up by overseas companies too early. I'd love it if, if Australia managed to hold on to a lot more of the innovation and reap a lot more of the profit for that innovation, but that's, that's a discussion for another podcast. The next cycle that we have is what we call the short debt cycle. And you may have heard me talk about this on a podcast before. 
when basically the economy is doing okay, the government, oh, sorry, the RBA, not the government, I mean, I know that one reports to the other, but the RBA uh, reduces the interest rates. And when they, induce, when they reduce the interest rates, they increase access to credit, essentially, because it means that even though the bank, to use my early example, I've put $80 in the bank, the bank can now give out $800. They don't have that $800, but they can give out $800 and they don't have to print it. They can just update the spreadsheet and they give it out. But more people want that money. A lot more people want that money because the interest rates are low. And so what that does is it creates a lot of debt within the system. But that $800, right, that might be, I mean, to make it easy, we can multiply multiply the, uh, multiply the that by a 1,000, right? So I've put $80,000 into the bank. Someone else, that means that the bank can lend out $800,000. Now, that $800,000 that they lend out gets spent somewhere. So that $800,000 is somebody else's income, right? Not one specific person, but it's distributed across a bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. That eight hundred thousand dollars then in turn go like that eight hundred thousand dollars feasibly gets spent at a shop or whatever. The shop owner goes and go puts that into a yes. bank. That bank then can lend out on then again ten times. So eight eighty thousand becomes eight hundred thousand becomes eight uh, million. It keeps becomes, going. Yeah, it keeps going. Yeah, it fractionally decreases over time by ten percent. So you actually it's not specifically linear like that, but it does keep going. There's a finite point to that, and I, I looked at the maths on that. What's the? Do you happen to know? There's like there's a because there's a trailing. Uh, like I don't know what the lapsing. I curve. don't know what the uh, mathematical equation around finding the limit to use the um, calc. Yeah, but it's very. It's a lot. It's a very yeah, it's lot. really really high. Lot. and so we never we never really approach that because it's inflationary, right? Because suddenly we have so much more cash in the system. And the actual amount of cash generally ends up being about 2% per year. Now, that's really significant for a couple of reasons. One, it means that whatever wealth you have in monetary terms is decreasing by 2% per year. Let me ask you a question. You said it increases by 2% a year. You're basically saying the total amount of cash in the system increases by about 2% a year based on that. Everything exactly. Explained. Yeah, okay. How does the cash increase just through the continuation of the proliferation of that? Um, now that's, okay. that's so an average. At, at some point, it would have been faster. Yep. Right? At some point, when it's because the if it was when it was the whole start of the system, it would have been growing quicker because it was exactly. smaller. But now, because of the law of large numbers, it's growing necessarily slower because the law of large numbers. So okay, so so that and that gives the underlying core inflation rate. And then when that's the inflation rate, basically the supply of money in the system is growing by two percent. Yes. Um, except when they go and print heaps more money, and then that means the amount of money in the system goes. Uh, that would be qua quantitative easing, right? Which pops up from time to time when there's some sort of crisis. Um, but we, we could put that aside because essentially that's basically, it's resulting in the same thing. It's resulting in a lot more cash being in the system. So what happens is we don't, we don't reach that limit that you were referring to because inflation starts to kick in. Now, my issue with inflation is, as I've said before on, on one of the other podcasts, is it tends to be more of a political measure, a political measure than anything else, because it's, it's normally politically driven. It's politicians that, or, or economists who can decide what goes in the basket that you're measuring. And they're not normally including house prices. Right? They're not normally including, including stock prices or anything like that, which people might want to buy. And so- the easiest way to think about it is to think of your own personal inflation rate. What are the things that you want to buy? If you 
have your own house, you don't have a mortgage, you don't want to invest anything, you don't need a new car every year, and you know that the food supply is only going up by X percent, then that's what your inflation rate is. And then you can make some calculations around how to manage that. But if you want to be getting into property and you know that's going up by a much higher percentage year, then you have a much higher personal inflation rate. You need to be earning to make sure that you're you're keeping in check with it. And the best way to do that, as we'll get to, is, is going to be property. So what happens is everyone starts borrowing cash because we love borrowing cash, right? It's part of the culture, right? Get smart debt, get good debt. And then the inflation rate starts to go up the RBA starts to think, okay, we need to we need to sort of throttle that, right? Because they basically have two things to do. One, stimulate the economy by lowering inflation rates. Two, control inflation by raising inflation rates. That's basically the mechanism that they have. They don't really have anything else that they can do. They can ask for regulators to slow down access to credit. So that's the other thing they can do if they lower the interest rates to try to stimulate the economy, but they want to be careful about what money can be borrowed so it doesn't all just go straight into the property market which it traditionally does then they can make it more difficult to get credit for property and easier for business so they can try to do that because that will actually stimulate the economy how does this translate to the property market not crashing because what that kind of sounds like is a the potential for a debt bubble okay well what happens is the rba are very good at raising interest rates as and when they need to and so then the inflation rate starts to go up and everyone needs to tighten their belts a little bit you can't necessarily get the same great deals on finance that you could. Property becomes less attractive. And then you can sort of see that the debt starts to decrease. People start thinking, oh, well, actually, the best place for my cash right now is paying off debt that I have. I'm going to pay down my mortgage. Interest rates are high. I better start paying down my mortgage rather than going and buying another property. And so the amount of debt in the system starts to decrease. And because the RBA are very, very good at managing this, we just basically end up having these cycles. And according to Ray Dalio, and statistically it checks out in Australia, those short debt cycles are every seven to 10 years. How often does property double <laughs> according to the rule of thumb? Yeah, every seven to 10 years. What I find interesting there, though, is like it does it does actually like paint a picture, though, right? If there's this, if we only ever have ten percent of the money ever in the system, and that just keeps getting compounded and compounded and compounded and compounded, all we're ever doing is increasing the the debt ratio that we've got. You know, yeah, yes. does the question is does that matter? The question is does exactly. that matter, right? So, if I've got a million dollars of debt, is that a lot of debt or not? Well, it depends because if I've got a ten thousand dollar a year income, a million dollars of debt is going to be uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big problem, right? But if I've got a million dollars of debt and I've got $10 million a year of income, then it's not, it ain't no problem. The way to think about this would probably be to, be to think about how this then relates back to things like GDP and productivity, which is kind of the way I think about it. I'm like, cool, great, debt, wonderful. But if you've got if you've got a highly productive economy that, that the debt to GDP ratio is sustainable, then that's kind of like your LVR or your- Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, or anything like that on in on your own on your own basis, or your you know your your um what do they call it? I can't your DCR basically with the, with the banks, right? So it's your ability to, to borrow debt. So as long as that's sustainable, does it actually matter? Exactly. Well, this is this is where Ray Dalio goes into, and he is very Americentric or, or focused on America when he describes this because he's he's using the American economy as his model, which is different from the Australian economy, right? And that's that's a really really important distinction. Because how, yeah, because that was going to be my next thing, sorry to interrupt, like how and why is that different? Because I look at the US system and I'm like, that that's a country in decline, right? 
that's my humble point of view. I think it's a country in decline, and apologies if you're American and you disagree with that, but it appears to be a country that's in decline. And based on my understanding of Ray, Dal- Ray Dalio's work, one of the big warning signs he's got is like, hey, America, you're about to, the shit's about to hit the fan for you, America. So why is it different? What are the kind of fundamentals that are different from the U.S.? Because a lot of people have seen, a lot of people in Australia have seen what's happened in the U.S. Um, property market before, you know, 2008 and other stuff. And they're like, look, property markets do crash. That's the, and it's like, look, we've seen property. I've seen the big short. I've seen what happens. Property markets crash and it all goes to hell in a handbasket. Why won't that happen? What's the difference between the Australian and U.S. Uh, markets and why won't that happen in Australia? Two things. And to explain it, even though I've talked about the short debt cycle and you can sort of see it going up like that, there's also the long debt cycle. And the long debt cycle is basically at each little peak that you have on the short debt cycle, there's more debt in the system, particularly government debt. And so when government debt becomes so high that you can no longer manage it, right? You can't afford the interest payments on it and things like that. That's when you're going to default or you're going to hyperinflate the economy. And that's when things get really, really scary. And Ray Dalio's contention is that America is on that inexorable path that long debt cycle takes 70 to 80 years. And so when that happens, all of the financial models break. It's like, we don't know what's going to happen now. We're going to end up with a different reserve currency. What what the hell happens? Because there's so much debt. And you know we've seen hyperinflation, what happens to a country in Venezuela, Zimbabwe, a lot of different countries. It inevitably happens to them at some point. What happens when that, when the currency hyperinflates is that the assets become incredibly valuable, right? Because inflation, if you think of inflating like pumping up a tire, there's more air, there's tons, tons, tons more cash, right? If there's 10 times more cash in the system, then a million dollar property is suddenly worth 10 million. So it's really, really important to be holding assets. Now, Australians understand this, but there are two other things that really help Australia. One is that the government has done a really good job of keeping a handle on the amount of government debt. And the second is that in America, they have non-recourse loans, which means you buy a property for $800,000 and then it drops in value because in, in Australia, sometimes properties can dip for a year. They might go down by 5% in a particular area. In America, you can rock up and just go, well, there are the keys and walk away from the property. In Australia, you can't. In Australia, you say, well, there are the keys. And the bank says, well, okay, cool. Uh, well, where's the other 100,000, right? <laughs> you paid you paid 800. We paid, you took a loan of 800. You've given us back seven. Where's the other 100? We'll, we'll go you for that. We'll sue you for that. We'll bankrupt you for that. And people don't want that to happen in Australia. And so that is really good. The amount of money that you need in order to buy the property in the first place, all of these things kind of disincentivize people from selling property and having a, a classic kind of run like you had in the GFC. So here's an interesting point of reference, by the way. I just looked up the the US, United States federal debt to GDP ratio. Do you know what that is at the moment? 130%? About 130%. Yeah, sitting about 129%, 130%. Do you know what the Australian debt to GDP ratio is? No. No. No, it's not, actually. It is 22.3%. 22, okay. That's tiny. I don't know why I thought- Spider all. Just to be clear, that's that 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 just to be clear that that was in December 2022. So there's going to be a new fiscal update for that. But even if it was 40, even if it was 40 percent, even if it was 40 percent, I mean it's fractional compared it's to time. And to give a point of reference on that, what that what the the US debt to GDP ratio being 130 percent means that they've got 1.3 times the amount of debt to all of the economic output of a country for an entire year, which is a lot for a country to handle. 
I'm just looking it up now, and I've got Australian government debt accounted for 42.3% of the country's nominal GDP in June 2022, compared to the ratio of 47.7% in the previous year. Okay, there you go. I'm looking at net debt, so maybe that's where the um, maybe that's where the yeah statistics, right? <laughs> which source? Yeah, exactly. Which month? <laughs> What's the exact yeah, yeah, metric? Yeah. <laughs> lies, 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 and statistics. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. the the bottom line is we're really really safe. Like we're 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 super safe at the moment because what happens also is I mentioned that there are three ways that a government can stimulate the economy: interest rates, uh, trade and government spending. If we look at government spending, well, where does the government money come from? Well, the government gets money from taxes, yes. They also get it from bonds. So they have their bond market. So what the banks also do is they take that $80 that I've given them or 80,000 that we then upgraded it to in the next in the next iteration of our metaphor and they can use that 80 grand and they can go and buy government bonds. And those government bonds will pay out at a certain percent and that suddenly means that the government has a whole lot of cash that then they can go and invest in infrastructure projects and things like that. And so it's government debt that's going up and up and up over time, over a long period of time. Now, there are some some governments that manage their debt very well. And you can see like uh, in, I forget which president it was, but there are certain periods when the US debt to GDP has gone down, right? It was up at 40%, goes down to 33%. So it is manageable and you and you can pay it off, but sometimes it can reach a point where it's going to hit escape velocity. As long as you don't hit escape velocity, everyone can keep playing this game where the banks keep printing the money, people keep putting that money into assets that continue to grow. And as long as you don't have non-recourse loans and you have all of the regulatory framework that you have in Australia, no one's really going to crash the market, right? I mean, who would be big enough to crash the whole market? Yeah, unless they unless they fundamentally changed. Yeah, unless they fun, fundamentally changed an access to credit consideration, because that's one of the things in uh, in the U.S. market is yeah, the access to credit. So there's the non-recourse loans, but then there's also far more accessibility to financing properties based on uh, based on the asset, not the individual, and all of that kind of stuff. And so you have these other mechanisms which can allow the system to run away from itself. So as long as we've got the right regulations in place, then we can continue to play this ever expanding. Uh, debt game, and it's really interesting, right? Because uh, you know, a lot of people think that the economy can't continue to expand forever, and it's like, well, actually, it can. Like, that's actually it actually can, and that's the really interesting thing about it. And it's it's specifically limited by productivity per 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 capita is one of the or productivity um, productivity per GDP as well. Productivity per capita is like it's like how much can we continue to produce relative to the amount of people that we've got and all of this kind of stuff? And if the production rates go up. Then we have the capability to continue to expand it as well. So, you know, fundamentally, how are you measuring productivity? Yeah, uh, GDP per capita. Well, that's well, that's looking great if all of the other countries are also printing two percent more cash per year, right? If everyone's in on the same on the same game, and everyone's incentivized to do it because governments want the cash, they need the cash, and so the government can go and they can get, um, like if they need an infrastructure project because they want to get reelected then they need the cash to come from somewhere. Well, that's okay because we've got the banks who've been printing 2% cash this year. Uh, and so we'll ask some of them to buy some of the bonds. Now they need to make it look, they need to make the bonds look attractive with a sensible return. But essentially that's that's part of the system as well. And so the government and the banks are all incentivized. It's not like us saying, oh, you know, I hope it keeps going like this. The governments and the banks, they're all in it together and they need it to keep going like that how many ba- how many governments in the world would be really happy just living off their tax revenue 
Yeah, but what's to stop us going into hyperinflation then, which would obviously be a very bad thing, right? What's to stop that happening? There is nothing that stops it happening aside from politicians being responsible with how much they spend. Now, in America, we've seen a situation where politicians have not been responsible. But either way, if there is hyperinflation, that does not mean that the property market crashes. That means the opposite, right? That means that, means that the, the money crashes. The property holds value. Yeah, yeah. But what's interesting about that is the the property side is, so that's great if you already hold property, but what can actually happen is people, it can actually stop people getting into because- That's the, why you've got to get in there. Cost of, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, like, but I don't think we are going to have a hyper, hyperinflationary scenario, but you are right. The reason that, that, that I believe that is true is because I believe that as much as I, I'm very hesitant to say this <laughs> because I-, I I don't, I don't point hold, of contention. I don't hold. We've been building up. To I don't hold a, for weeks. Yeah, I don't hold a <laughs> tremendous amount of uh, faith. To, to say that you have faith in politics you know? is like what the like. I, I mean, I don't like. But there's there's sensibilities that exist within our fiscal policy management um, systems that point to the fact that it's unlikely we would go down a pathway that would lead to hyperinflation. I actually think that the Australian economy is is has been exceptionally well managed for a really long period of time. And I mean, you'd have to have someone who completely fucks it up basically for it to go into some kind of hyperinflationary scenario because I, I fundamentally believe that we actually do have um, a good amount of regulation in place to prevent that kind of kind of thing. I agree with everything that you just said except for the part where you said, you know, I've got faith in politicians because and I don't know I don't know how you felt <laughs> When, no, I never. I didn't you, say that. I, I said it. I know. I. I didn't actually say. I said it's very hard. You wouldn't necessarily. No, I didn't actually say I have faith in politicians. I said there's a system that exists that has a good track record. Because <laughs> when you say it out loud, right? When you say, "Yeah, yeah I have faith in. I have faith that the politicians uh, do the right thing." No, 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 no. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not saying. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not on record okay. saying that. Just to be clear, what I would say there in and this is uh, if you've seen the film Catch Me If You Can, that's uh, Leonardo DiCaprio plays the role of Frank Abagnale, who who's a real person, right? It's it's based on a true story, based on Frank Abagnale's memoirs uh, and his book. And in there, he says that every system that has been man-made can be broken. All it requires is the requisite amount of collusion. And if you get enough people to collude, then you can break the system. And so if you want to make an unbreakable system, A, it's impossible, but if you want to get as close to that as possible, then you want to make the amount of collusion required so vast that it becomes impractical, right? That's something that Bitcoin has managed to achieve, but that's a topic for a different podcast, a different, <laughs> different everything. Now, would we get enough collusion within Australian politicians? Not this year. Maybe not next year, maybe not within the next five years, maybe not within the next 10 years to be fiscally irresponsible enough to allow hyperinflation to happen in Australia. I think that it is an inevitability across every single fiat currency. It will happen eventually. I think it's going to happen in America within the next 10 years because they cannot manage their debt. They're going to have to default. Hyperinflation specifically, you mean? They've got two options. One is to default on their debt. Two is to hyperinflate the currency. If they default on the debt, then the US dollar is at serious risk of no longer being the world's uh, reserve currency. But, that, but that's already happening anyway. You look at BRICS and everything like that, that's already happening. It like, is. There are, there, are, there are a tremendous amount of countries who are saying, 
we want to trade in our own currency, not trade in the US currency. There are a lot of them. And so the US currency is under attack from without and within. So on the outside, you've got BRICS, you've got Saudi Arabia now trading oil, right? So we're seeing the end of the petrodollar. We're seeing the debt obligations that US government has in US denominated currency getting out of control. They keep on popping the debt ceiling higher and higher and higher. How long can they keep on doing that until someone says, actually, you know, you've, you've got to pay this, guys. Um, so I think hyperinflation will eventually happen to the US dollar. Yeah. Or they'll just, yeah, well, maybe, you know, or they'll just default on their debt. Because you've got to remember the um, the, the UK was the largest economic powerhouse, uh, you know, in the last century. And then they had to default on their debt because they just went, oh, whoops, our debt got too high. And they defaulted. And that was when they started to slip off the, the top of the rankings. So, well, there's a bit of an economics history lesson here. If if we've got time for it, or is that something we should say for another day? It's not too long. Um, yeah, what's the Cliff Notes version? The UK had the world's reserve currency, and that basically means this is the currency that the whole world has to use when they want to trade internationally. And after World War II, I'm in Japan, I've got to be careful how loudly I say that. It's not a, it's not a great phrase over here. After the collapse of the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, um, <laughs> we're in a position where where um, the UK had a massive amount of debt and, and the US um, were, they had all the wealth. And so um, the UK basically sold their gold to the US and then the US pegged their currency to uh, the dollar, uh, Bretton Woods. And then that, that was the name of the agreement. And so the US currency was pegged to the, uh, pegged to gold, sorry, dollar pegged to gold. Fast forward to 1971, and they've been issuing promissory notes everywhere. So all of these promissory notes, like, so you get $10, a $10 US uh, currency uh, bill, uh, and that's a note. And the reason it's called a note is because it's a promissory note. It's worth $10 worth of the gold that's over there, and it's, and it's at a fixed rate. Um, the original fixed rate, when it was in pounds, was actually devised by Sir Isaac Newton, which is a nice little fun tidbit if anyone is on any uh, trivia shows who wants to be in there or anything like that. Uh, but the US one wasn't, obviously, because Newton was long gone by then. And in 1971, the US had been actually issuing a lot more promissory notes than the gold that they actually had. And France called them on it. France said, can we see the gold? And uh, the US said, oh, yeah, sure. And they said, yeah, can we see it now? Not really. And Nixon basically said, oh, we're not doing it that way anymore. The US, like when you have the world's reserve currency, it puts you in a very powerful position because at one point it was only costing the US 17 cents to print a $100 bill, which means another country needs $100 worth of stuff to get that $100 bill that's only cost you 17 So it really is a powerful, powerful thing. And with sanctions, if you stop people being able to trade with your currency and things like that electronically, it's it's a massively powerful thing. The US didn't want to lose that. And they made an agreement with the petrodollar in 1974 with Saudi Arabia to say that Saudi Arabia will only sell oil in US dollars and the US will always protect Saudi Arabia militarily. And now Biden has come into power. Now, I don't care whether you like Biden or Trump for anybody listening. Um, all I'm talking about is what these politicians have done, not who you should vote for, not who I voted for, because I'm a Kiwi, I can't vote for any of them. But what Biden did is he seemed to campaign on the idea of putting Saudi Arabia back in its place. And when he went over there and he visited Saudi Arabia, there was a, a Saudi prince wouldn't even shake his hand. And so he's really campaigned on this. And he's also been doing some things to do with the demand side of the supply demand equation with oil, trying to reduce uh, US demand for oil. 
to manipulate the price. And OPEC have just got together and said, well, if you reduce demand, we're going to reduce supply. So there's a bit of argy-bargy happening between Saudi Arabia and America, and it's not good for the US dollar because Saudi Arabia are basically starting to say, yeah, the petrodollar might be coming to an end, guys. We've got plenty of cash. We can buy plenty of weapons. We might be able to defend ourselves. And now we're going to start selling in currency that isn't the US dollar. So the US dollar is under real attack at the moment. Very much so, yeah. I don't think it's um. There's a lot of things that point to the situation being exceptionally different in the US than in Australia. But one of the kind of challenges that I think the Australian people have is that the world, their worldview, gets painted so deeply by what we hear out of the US. You know, you hear like I, I have lots of people saying, "Oh, recession," and it's like that's US news. Oh, you know, we're, we're going to go bankrupt. And like, there's a lot of these kind of fear headlines that come out of the US, which people assume exists in the Australian um, sphere, which just fundamentally don't. You know, like, it's a fundamentally different economy. It's operating in different ways and exceptionally better managed. So that's the key. I think it's important for what you said. Yeah, I think it's better managed. That's the key yeah. for now. But how long yeah, is it now. until we end up with a group of politicians who do what? the political elites have been doing in America for the last 30 years, regardless of which party. Yeah, I mean, maybe, right? But also maybe not. You know, like we've got a tremendously good track record of prosperity and Australia is a, is in in many ways, you know, a really great country. It's got a lot going for it. And so I think, you know, from that perspective, I think one of the things that we can take away from this is that you don't need to be, like a lot of people are concerned. They're like, is the economy going to crash and all of this kind of stuff? And fundamentally, no. Like, there's every, all signs point to the Australian oh, economy not crashing. Um, Aussie economy and great. Yeah, the economy, Aussie economy is awesome. Actually, it's brilliant. And not only that, but it's also looking at this macro uh, perspective on real estate in Australia, and going like, is it like, is it still going to be the best place to put my money? And it's like, well, you know, on a risk-adjusted basis, there's no better asset class in the world to put your money into. Than Australian, specifically Australian, real estate, right? yeah, specifically Australian real estate, because other markets, you know, the risk adjustment, risk adjusted return profile might actually be negative. You know, like you could get great front end uh, metrics, and then once you're risk adjusted, and you end up with in a in a kind of like a negative return basis. But on a risk adjusted return basis in the Australian market, it's 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 I can't think of a single better place to go put your money, particularly if you are, you know, in any way vaguely. A normal person. Yeah. If you're a billionaire, if you got a, if you got a billion dollars in cash, okay, maybe there's some other stuff that you could go do. Um, but if you are not some ultra 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 high net worth, if you're like a regular person, <laughs> which most people are by definition, there is no better asset class to. There is no better place to invest your money than Australian real estate. The reason I prattled on a bit about the U.S. economy is because a lot of people might be looking at Australia now and comparing it to America in 1990. And then you look at the path that America has gone because America's uh, debt to GDP, similar to Australia's back then. And all it's taken is 30 years of bad politicians. Now, will that happen in Australia or do we have enough framework around it to stop that happening over the course of the next 30 years? One, I think we do. Two, it's 30 years. <laughs> it's 30 years of good stuff that you've got anyway. Three... Even if it does happen, all it means is you're even better off being an Australian property than we thought, which was already pretty awesome. So there's, yeah. there's no yeah. downside to being in property. And if anything, the things that we see happening in the world or the way we understand the monetary system functioning in Australia 
you really need to be jumping into property because every year that you're not, you're losing 2% of your wealth. That's the way I think of it, right? If I've got a net worth of, say, 1.2 mil or something like that, and then the government goes out and prints 2% more cash, then that 1.2 mil has essentially become worth 40 grand less, like uh, 40, whatever it would be, right? 2% of 1.2, 24 grand less. I've effectively lost 24 grand. So I need to make up that 24 grand. If I have a job earning, you know, 80 grand a year or something, then 24, of <laughs> that's just gone. So you need to be investing in things that are going to outpace inflation. And yeah, I property, 100% property does it because of the leverage. Yeah, totally. Well, the leverage and the and the solid underlying fundamentals. Like, you know, there's there's so much going for the property market, particularly in Australia, that it's like, you know, some markets will go up and down over time. There will always be independent market volatility in different areas. But macro um, is definitely the best place it can be. Emil, this has been a good conversation. What do you think? I was going to add one tiny little point at the end. Okay, go on. I bought a bog standard property. My very first property investment in Australia was a bog, just a bog standard property. It grew at the rate kind of expected that it would over time. Bought it for 400K, sold it for 595. Profit on that over time, I basically 9X'd for money that I put into it over the course of 11 years. Bog standard property without having to do much. The monetary system just kept on putting 2% more cash into the economy every year. And it did all of the work for me. Now, a hedge fund might be able to do that as well, but then you're taking on massive risk because of the volatility, they can suddenly disappear. But even just a bog standard property to make that kind of return, that is what, and, and learning more about the monetary system, it's given me the confidence that I know that that's just going to happen again and again and again and again. Love it. Love it. It's a great final thought. Emil, thanks. Appreciate your time. It's been a good chat. Digging into, digging into it for a different angle. I really enjoyed it and I hope everybody else has too. If you have enjoyed this, let us know. You can send us an email, podcast at dash.com.au or leave us a comment on whatever platform you are on. Let us know your thoughts on this. I'm sure there's going to be a few thoughts coming through in the comments as well. Guys, thanks so much. We'll see you in the next episode.